talking about the 2022 midterm election is really talking about like the Dobbs decision and the, the earthquake that it was. It restructured and reset the electorate. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Ongwele. I'm Kyle Kondik. Kyle, we have a lot of candidate news this week. There's been a wave of Republican presidential candidate announcements. What are you thinking about how uh, Ron DeSantis officially entered the race this week? So, look, a lot of people are taking pot shots at DeSantis for this Twitter Spaces announcement that he did in the midst of other announcements that that he did a presidential campaign announcement is a rolling series of events of course he was on fox news later in the evening and on one hand i think that criticism is justified in that as a presidential campaign or as any sort of campaign there are certain you know, there's only so many things you control and part of them is like the venue in which you announce the whether the the, the technology works whether you should expect the technology to work going into it and so from the DeSantis team, I think particularly the comm staff, I think, frankly, has developed this reputation as being pretty arrogant and pretty aggressive in the way that they talk to reporters or rather don't talk to reporters. And so I think that naturally they're, they set, set a higher bar for themselves because they're so uncompromising in their own and, and so unapologetic in their own public pronouncements and things that when they screw something up, I think it's natural to just jump all over them for it. And again, I, I don't think it was undeserved necessarily. For that to happen. But in the grand scheme of things, does this really matter? Probably not. Now, I guess the other thing is, is this emblematic of other sorts of logistical mistakes that we might expect to see in, in the future. I don't know about that. Sometimes it's just a one-off uh, sort, sort of thing. And again, it's not like this was the only look at Ron DeSantis that people were going to get on Wednesday night. There were many other venues. This was a part of a rollout strategy, not the whole thing, I think. And also they were telegraphing for, for a long time that he was going to run for president anyway. Yeah, it was rocky, but in the grand scheme of things, if in fact he's a good candidate and someone who can really win the nomination, this is going to be in the rearview mirror real fast. In a lot of ways, to me, it reflects more about what's happening at Twitter and changes and challenges on social media than it does necessarily on the presidential campaign itself. For some of that conversation yesterday, I felt like I was back in journalism school. Like they were talking about like audience size and Twitter itself. It was this very, like the conversation itself, I think I thought was strange in that it was like self-referential about the self-referential about the actual platform as opposed to the platform of Twitter, as opposed to the platform of Ron DeSantis. Although of course he did get into that. He started off with what I guess will be something of his, his stump speech. I guess the other thing is just in listening to into to DeSantis is that I did wonder about, of course, he was getting these questions that were prepackaged, I think, and from very friendly questioners, people who are allies of his. And Elon Musk seems to like him and the guy David Sachs seems to like him too, which is fine. But I mentioned earlier that, that the DeSantis team is pretty aggressive with the press. He's only started now to do some more sort of traditional cultivation of the press and say what you will about Donald Trump. But particularly in 2016, Trump was out in media all the time and not necessarily just with questioners who were going to be nice to him. And so I do wonder how DeSantis will perform now that he's going from being this extremely powerful and I would say somewhat insulated governor of Florida to this sort of Wild West environment of being a presidential candidate and just being out there a lot and not necessarily being always exposed to friendly voices in friendly media. So that's part of the challenge, I think, for DeSantis. And as you compare him to Trump, and eventually they're going to share a stage at some point, DeSantis, I just wonder if he's going to be fluid enough to deal with 
the sort of shape shifting Trump and all of the attacks that Trump's going to make against him, many of which probably will be nonsensical almost. Trump just does this. He's a very, he's a very difficult person to tangle with. And we'll just have to see how light on his feet that DeSantis can be when he does that. But again, that's all for the future here. Yeah. So speaking of the criminally indicted former president seeking the comeback, he's still doing better in polling and actually has expanded the lead. Governor DeSantis is about roughly 38 points behind in the field per the morning per, per morning consult and 538 averages. And Vice President Mike Pence hasn't declared, but he's also still doing better than Nikki Haley, the South Carolina governor who brings both executive and foreign policy expertise. We, of course, have to be careful about polling at this time. But any thoughts on what we might see changing now that DeSantis has actually finally entered the race? I do think if, in fact, DeSantis is like a real threat to Trump, I would think that he should get something out of this announcement, even though to people who follow these things, it's, again, it's not that surprising that DeSantis is officially a candidate now. You sometimes do see an actual change in the polling when someone actually puts his or her foot into the ring. If DeSantis, We know that DeSantis can poll higher than what he's polled because he has. He, a few months ago, he was doing better compared to Trump than he is now. Can DeSantis regenerate some of that support that maybe he had? That's a bare minimum that he has to do because it's not like he was leading Trump necessarily even at his highest moments. But what if we get like a week or two from now and DeSantis actually hasn't improved at all? That to me would be a red flag. Again, not that the polls are predictive necessarily, but if there's some reservoir out there of people who can and will support DeSantis, but who don't support him right now, presumably some of those people should get activated or maybe reactivated um, after the announcement compared to before the announcement. So that's something I'm curious about. I, don't, I wouldn't put a specific number on it or anything, but I do think the trajectory is important. The other thing too, as you mentioned, this field is getting crowded, not just with lower tier candidates too. Tim Scott, Senator for South Carolina, he formally announced earlier this week you mentioned Nikki Haley as a well-credentialed candidate. Pence, former vice president, well-credentialed candidate. That's a, that's several people right there who fit the profile of credible candidates for the nomination. Now, granted, only one person can win, and there are a lot of people who are going to go belly up or whatever. But And I think that probably the Trump campaign views all those people as all competing just to be the alternative to Trump as opposed to taking a lot of Trump support. It seems to me that in a lot of ways, DeSantis and Trump are competing for the same voters. Senator Tim Scott or Governor Nikki Haley are are going after different voters within the Republican electorate. And it seems that more broadly speaking, Senator Scott's probably going to have a harder time gaining traction because he isn't in the fray. He's a more distinguished senator, a more credible senator. He is not in the MAGA movement, so he may actually have a tougher time among primary voters. Is What is your sense? There was an interesting report recently by uh, the Republican pollster Patrick Ruffini's Echelon Insights. He puts out a lot of useful, I think, useful, interesting information. He talked about how that when DeSantis was riding higher than he is now, that part of the reason for that is he was doing better with the voters who identified themselves as, quote, very conservative. And that he actually got to within parity or maybe he took a little bit of a lead. I can't remember the exact numbers with Trump after the 2022 election. And then Trump has regained his traction with those voters. And so there aren't like a ton of super moderate, very moderate voters within the Republican primary electorate. I'd say they're more so in the Democratic primary electorate. 
but still, a primary electorate obviously going to be more you know, different and more ideological than a, than a general electorate would be. And also, there is this educational divide that we've talked about in the past. I think, and we've also talked about crystal ball, where you know, to the extent that there are voters that are more skeptical of Trump, typically the voters who are, are likely to have a four-year college degree and that sort of thing. And when you look at like where the support for not just DeSantis, but the other non-Trump candidates, it comes maybe more college-educated groups. So there is a challenge for DeSantis. I think like he first needs to be the clear candidate in that group and then start cutting into Trump's support amongst the more working-class voters. And maybe if it's not DeSantis, maybe then it becomes Tim Scott. It's supposed to be what they're hoping for, that it becomes Tim Scott or Nikki Haley that DeSantis flops and then they take over and then they could be the alternative to, to, to Trump. But of course, the danger for all of them and for Republicans who don't want Trump to get renominated is that you're filled with squabbling amongst the second, third, fourth place candidates, and Trump could basically just play like whack-a-mole against the people he thinks are strongest. Clearly, he thinks DeSantis is the strongest challenger because DeSantis is the only one he's really criticizing. And like Asa Hutchinson, former governor of Arkansas, who is more running as like a more avowed Trump critic, he, he doesn't really have much juice in the primary either. But if you're a Republican who's going to be outwardly critical of Trump, Trump will criticize you. But otherwise... He's not going to criticize you unless he thinks you're a threat. And, and again, DeSantis is the one that he seems to pinpoint with good reason. Yeah, he's he's not addressing other candidates really much at all. <laughs> no, in fact, he's saying nice things about them. He's saying he said nice things about Haley. He said that he was basically supportive of Tim Scott getting in the race. And he used Scott as a way to attack DeSantis. This is we've we've talked about this. Granted, Trump is by far the leading candidate. Basically, all these polls you look at. But DeSantis is always pretty clearly two, and combined, they have they have the lion's share of all the support of the primary. So unless that changes, these other candidates are just struggling for oxygen, I think. Let's also talk about what's in the crystal ball this week. Miles, our colleague Miles Coleman, wrapped up a series he's been doing on how presidential candidates perform in each state relative to the national popular vote. He looks at presidential elections since 2000. In the last of this series, he shows performance in the Western states, which not surprisingly have all trended to the left of, relative to the national popular vote. And he also looks at which candidates have been the best performing candidates for each party in each state relative to the national popular vote over the last six presidential elections. Um, among the Democratic candidates, Gore really did best primarily in the Southern states. Kerry, primarily in the Northeast. Obama was the best performing Democrat overall and dominated primarily in the Midwestern states, while Clinton was, only took California and Washington in the ranking and Biden in the interior Western states in Oregon. President George W. Bush was the best performing Republican in the West and interior Western states, with the exception of Arizona. And Trump did best in the Midwest, South, and Northeast, and was the best-performing Republican in 25 states. And Romney was just the best-performing in Utah and Kansas. What are some of your key takeaways from Miles's analysis? I think it adds some texture and some depth to some of the broader trends that we've seen in that. The West as a unit, West of the Mississippi, if you look at that sort of broader region, you see a lot of those states getting more Democratic or less Republican relative nation. Now, granted, states like you know, Utah and Idaho and whatever, those strongly Republican states, et cetera. And like the Northeast, I thought one little interesting tidbit, and, and Miles gave a possible reason for this, but I think it's compelling, is that 
Al Gore in 2000, his running mate was Joe Lieberman, Jewish senator. And it's in, in some states with, that have fairly substantial Jewish populations, you'd actually see that the Gore-Lieberman Gore ticket did the best, rel again, relative to the country in both like Florida, which is a decent-sized Jewish population, and also in some of the northeastern states where you also have a, a decent-sized Jewish population. So there's probably some effect there, too. And again, Trump, relative to the, the country, was the best-performing um, Republican in New York State. But again, New York State still voted pretty strongly Democratic. Maybe these, I think some of the, the numbers here can tell you where some of these states are going. I'd say particularly some of the Midwestern states in terms of trending for Republicans and some of the Sunbelt states like Georgia or Arizona trending more toward uh, Democrats. I think it, it also is telling that some of the trends, I think Trump supercharged some of the trends that we're now familiar with, but a lot of those trends were, were, you know, were present in earlier elections. You could see some of the kind of affluent suburban places. We think of those places as being historically Republican, like the Collar counties of Chicago, for of Chicago's Cook County. But you saw some trends for Democrats even prior to Trump. Trump even moved that along some. States like West Virginia and Arkansas and Kentucky and Tennessee, those are places where Bill Clinton did well. And then the Democrats have fallen off a cliff in those states. Again, Trump hypercharged if they were all Republican leading prior to Trump too. There's, we're in a period of, of very competitive, close national elections every four years for the most part. Um, but there are a lot of changes going on underneath the hood at the state or even the some state level. And that's something we've been trying to show through Miles' series, some articles I've done about how the, the sort of more, more populous counties in a state vote versus the rest of the state, et cetera. And, uh, next, we're going to be talking to Michael Frias and Harris Akil. They're both with Catalyst, which is a big Democratic data firm. They've recently been doing a lot of big picture reports several months after recent elections, talking about the demographics of the electorate. A huge fan of their work, and I think you'll really learn a lot about what actually happened in, in 2022 from those So stay with us. I just want to say I'm, I'm a huge fan of this report that you all do, <laughs> and uh, I look forward to it. I know you did one for Virginia in 2021 and some of the past elections, and I'm just always looking forward to seeing it. And so I guess the first question that I had was, there's a narrative of about an election that comes out right after, right as it happens, based on the exit polls that we have at the time and what have you. And so we get this sort of understanding or we think an understanding of what happened in the election. And then I'd say like much later on, data comes out that is, I think, basically of higher quality, which I think is the reports that you guys do and other things that come out about turnout or whatever. So the question I want to ask is, this: you have the report out now. How do you think this report either sort of challenges or supports what we previously thought about the 2022 midterm? This really is like an enterprise-wide effort, right? This is everybody from collecting the precinct election results, the actual vote history. And Kyle, to your point, part of that is dependent upon the, these official state sources making this data available that allows this like higher quality data to be available. And in our current state of politics with breathlessness and the omnipotence of social media and, and cable news network, Something has to fill the air between an election day and when all this data comes out. So we understand and appreciate that people are doing the best that they can with the available data that they have. We're really pleased that we were able to produce this report for now the last three elections. Obviously, not counting Virginia, that would be four. And like, I think a couple of things right off the bat. First is, I think there was this idea or thought that the Republicans were building this multiracial coalition and like they were really storming back. 
And I think when you look at the data and you look at one of the slides that we present and we look at the composition of the electorate and that it's literally a third, you really begin to see the diversity of the electorate and the composition of democratic support. And one, and then two is you also see that we made inroads, right? Among some of the GOP base, right? White non-college women moving towards the Democrats, a little less so with the men. And so I think, and then we also get into the Latinos, which is obviously a, a really competitive portion of the electorate. And we seem appeared to stabilize that, the losses among the Latino community too. I just, I think those things challenge some of the conventional wisdom coming out of the election. And then I think it also confirms some things, right? There was the composition, right? Democrats did make inroads with white non-college women. They made some inroads with even white men as well, not as much, and stabilized their support among Latinos. And also, other thing that this challenges is, or confirms is, what was the, the impact of MAGA on the top of the ticket? Mm -hmm. And I think when you have the data that you suggested, Kyle, immediately following election, there are lots of stories that can be told or spun and figure out like how well did MAGA candidates do amongst themselves, MAGA candidates versus non-MAGA candidates within the GOP. And then how did MAGA candidates do uh, up against Democrats? And I think what our data confirms is they paid a price, right? Like that kind of extremism cost Republicans opportunities at elections that they maybe could have won in another environment with a different set of candidates. And I do think that confirmed it, right? There was this idea and suspicion. Now we have the actual data and the results that show that it did cost them. There was a, there was a MAGA tax um, on those candidates. I, want, I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about that MAGA tax and where it was concentrated and then overall what you found. Yeah, I think one of the, the, the pieces that really stood out for us as we were stud studying the trends and creating this report was unlike virtually any other midterm in our lifetime and even before, there were two distinct electorates that emerged here. One was in highly contested states as we rated by Cook Political, but so certainly across the board, um, they, these look very similar to the 24 battlefield, for example. And there, what we saw was in those highly contested races, a number of MAGA Senate and gubernatorial candidates, whether that's Kerry Lake, whether that's Tudor Dixon, whether that's Mastriano, across the, the U.S., underperformed Trump by two to four points. And non-MAGA candidates, the more mainstream candidates, if you will, such as Brian Kemp in Georgia, a number of them actually outperformed Trump by about five points. There was this tale of two electorates that emerged. And I think to Michael's earlier point, some of the immediate takes didn't really, we didn't really have the data to be able to really understand those two distinct trends. So that was a really a, a huge narrative. And I'll add part of what our report takes great pains to highlight is these MAGA candidates also were the catalyst for a lot of increased turnout, right? You look at Michigan and you look at youth turnout exceeding 2018. Like we were cautioning everybody, look, 2018 was a historic year. It was post-Trump. There were protests in the streets immediately after the election, the inauguration, and continued through. And to see the young vote, vote, the turnout increase and match 2018 was really historic. And so I, I think that's a combination, right? Like with good candidates for the Democratic side, 
And we also had some of these incredibly extreme MAGA candidates on the ticket that were also motivating people. Certainly the Democrats did better in this election, I think, than I thought they would and a lot of other people thought they would. That said, it was still a shift from 2020 to 2022 that was pro-Republican by, by a handful of points. One of the things you note in the, the, the report is that while Democrats held up to 2020 levels with Latino voters, Asian American voters, by your uh, uh, analysis, shifted pretty strongly, the Republicans. So that's one group that you can really point to. But in what other ways did, did Republicans improve their performance from 2020 in this election, as, you, as shown by your report? Again, I, I think we would go back to that frame of two electorates. And in states that were less competitive uh, on the Senate and gubernatorial election, there was a three-point advantage overall for Republicans. And so they did improve slightly among a number of different communities. Nationally, if we look at the numbers, Support for Democrats went down by two points compared to 2020. Among the black electorate, we saw an erosion of about three points. And as you mentioned, API voters were more likely to vote for Republicans by about seven points. However, I think if you look at the contested states, there's an enormous picture of stability there compared to the Biden coalition in 2020. And, and so it really is about the something specific was happening in these contested states. And I think it really speaks to the discipline of investment, of organizing and on messaging in those states. So we know that women register to vote at record rate, especially in some key competitive states right after the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you found in terms of women voting and how it might have changed from 2020, especially. That's a great question. I've talked about white non-college women, I, I think from our perspective, talking about the 2022 midterm election is really talking about like the Dobbs decision and the, the earthquake that it was. It restructured and reset the electorate. Kyle, like you said, like we all expected and had things gone the way typically midterm elections go, I'm sure we would be having a slightly different conversation today about what our findings are. It mm -hmm. just, like, the, the earthquake that just reshuffled the deck is the Dobbs decision. And we saw it immediately in Kansas, as you see it in our report, where we note that registration went up across states, but it never resettled below 50%. It was always hovering a little bit higher than normal. And so that was the, like, enduring ripple effect of, of that event. And then... The, the other piece, and our, our, our um, research partners, Equis Research, also have shared this. There was this conventional wisdom that this was going to really hurt Democrats among Latinos. Like Latinas and Latinos were going to be very like cross-pressured and conflicted about what the abortion issue meant to them. And it just turns out that wasn't the case. Like in their research and in the numbers that we present, like it actually helped with the Latino community and was something, and that was counterintuitive. Like the conventional wisdom going in is, hey, we're dealing with some cultural sensitivities, or we think culturally, like the Latinos are going to be turned off by this abortion message. And it turns out, in fact, that was not the case. And our data suggests that, and also their research co corroborates that. And to speak to Michael's point about that cross pressure, there was also this question around. Latinos in particular are affected by 
inflation. And again, for example, in Nevada and Arizona, more of the cash economy based there. But ultimately, what our partners at Akis showed was that abortion was a motivator. Abortion voters turned out in the Latino community and Latinas and inflation-based voters actually on, on margin tended to stay home. It, it was a huge drive. And I think ultimately what the Democrats were able to really capitalize on was nationally, voters understood what Dobbs meant and what it will continue to mean uh, in terms of the rescission of a fundamental right. But what the Democrats were really able to do up and down the ticket was explain how the Republican candidates that they were facing, how draconian they were on abortion, and really connect that, that national worry to Republican positions and put the Republicans on the defensive there. And that certainly worked for the Latino. We mentioned earlier that you all did a similar report to this for the Virginia gubernatorial election in 2021. And that election, halfway between the presidential and the midterm, that was suggesting, hey, this is like a big red wave coming potentially. And I wonder if, I would speculate about this and see what you think about it, that it seems like the Virginia of 2021 kind of, Harris, you talked about the sort of the two tracks almost. There was like the competitive states and the non-competitive states for in 2022 and the Republicans doing better in the non-competitive ones. Like for Virginia, it seems like that maybe 2021 looked like how the 2022 midterm looked like in the non-competitive states. And it was much more of the red wave environment. Is that sort of a fair characterization of that? Potentially, but I would challenge that, which is I think 2021 was indicative of what the 2022 electorate would have been like had there not been Dobbs. Like the thing that people forget about Virginia 2021 that our report suggests is turnout was high among everybody. Right. Democrats were equally, it was equally competitive. And so when you think about what the environment was pre-Dobbs, we were headlong into the potential like anniversary of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. There was a whole set of things that were not adding up in the Democrats' favor, but Dobbs happened and then it just reversed everything. And so I think I would rather look at 2021 as an indication of a lost opportunity. Like had Republicans had the traditional landscape, had the Republicans had a non-Dobbs midterm, they could have had that, right? It would have been this infuriatingly frustrating close call with Democrats, right? Democrats were animated and wanted to turn out, but they didn't turn out at a high enough number to match like Republican enthusiasm. And it just reversed. And we, and we were monitoring our own internal polling throughout the election. And there was an enthusiasm gap as late as July, August, where we saw Republicans maintaining some enthusiasm gap. And then by the end of August, that completely disappeared and there was no longer an enthusiasm gap. And in our, some of our other polling and projects, we were evaluating if there's equal enthusiasm. When you get into an environment where it's equal enthusiasm in a midterm and there's contested races, the, the, the outlook for Democrats looked much better, right? Because we were all trying to forecast and look at the scenarios of, is this like a regular midterm? Is this like a extreme Republican midterm, red wave, or what if it's neutral, right? What if the enthusiasm's equal? And in enthusiasm equal scenarios, Democrats were always going to do better than traditionally you would do in a midterm. Exactly. And I, I think it, it was a particular time. And, and what we often talk about at Catalyst is how binary choices are often maybe overread sometimes. 
and that was a, a binary choice in a particular state at a particular time. Since then, uh, as Michael mentioned, Dobbs happened, but also Democrats were able to pass the Inflation Reduction Act, gun reform, and a number of student loans, for example, which really, I think, helped supercharge the youth vote. So Virginia was, I think, a sign of enthusiasm among Democrats as well, that exactly as Michael is saying, balanced out a little bit more in the coming year. I had just one other question for me, and it's something I've been thinking about that made your report maybe think about it a little bit more. So we've come to, to, to believe with good reason, given what happened in both 2000 and 2016, that there's this sort of like Republican tilt to the Electoral College and that they have an advantage in a 50-50 race and whatnot. And despite the fact that if you look at Obama's elections in 08 and 12, whatever the, the decisive state was, he actually did a little bit better in those states, I think, than the national popular vote. And what I'm starting to think about in 2024, given the Democratic strong performance in basically the most important electoral states in 2022, is it like, should we just automatically assume that 2024, there's going to be a Republican bias in the Electoral College? Or is there some question about that, given what we saw in in 2022, knowing that midterms don't necessarily predict the the general election? That's an interesting thought. Look, I think obviously when you're talking about presidential, you're talking about the Electoral College. And then when you look at 2022 and you look at where we were the most competitive and won races, right? And this is where I would give the community writ large a lot of credit, which is you pointed out 2016 and 2020. In 2016 in particular, what ends up happening at the end of elections is people begin to replace their bets, reshuffle where they've allocated resources, right? This is like, it's the stuff of political lore. Like, where was the last set of principal trips? Where, was it in the battleground states in Michigan or was it in Texas? Because we thought we were going to be opportunistic. And I think people have learned from that, one. And two, what you saw in this election in particular in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania is nobody let their foot off the gas. Democrats stayed invested all the way through election day. And part of what I think we are seeing evidence of is Governor Whitmer was probably going to win whether or not they put the extra money in, but winning Secretary of State, winning the Attorney General races, and also driving down ticket wins at the state legislative level, I think were where you saw the greatest impact. And so really, when you're talking about a strategy that was really grounded in about 2024, right? Like routinely organizers, donors, funders would sit down and say, this is the blue wall. Like in order to have a fair election in 2024, we've got to be successful in 2022 in these key states. And so I think when I'm thinking about your question about uh, an electoral advantage and obviously the electoral college like netted the Republicans, I think three or four electoral votes because of the growth patterns. I think we were keenly aware of like where we were going in 2024. And that's part of how it informed the decisions that we made in 2022. You mentioned earlier the racial composition of the parties. And I want to ask you a little bit more about Black voters because there was a decrease in turnout among Black voters. Do you have a sense of where and why that happened? Absolutely. Yeah, we can just pull that up. Overall, there was, again, I think this demarcation between national and, and highly contested races. And I think to Michael's earlier point, the, the highly contested races look almost exactly like the battleground in 2024. It's the past 270. 
nationally, there was a three-point drop from 91. Excuse me. There was about a two-point drop in black turnout, vote share. And there was about a one-point drop in highly contested states. We saw that was about a two to three-point drop in pretty much all highly contested states. It was pretty uniform. There wasn't a clear story to tell there. But I think that is something that we have to keep an eye on because that has been happening for multiple cycles. And some of the folks that we are partners that we work with and have collaborated with, Hit Strategies, Terrence, has pointed out that when we talk about Black voters and that community and how we continue to hold ground there, we start first with the idea and the knowledge that Black women continue to be the most consistent, loyal voting block for Democrats. Then when we start thinking about age, which is a big driver, and we start thinking about young Black men combined, that that's an area where we need to continue to invest. And so this is, this is the hope of our report, right? Which is when you take top lines and you say the Black, black voters are with Democrats and you Latinos by and large are in particular when you break out the ethnicity, the thing that is booing Latino vote voters and vote choice is for a long time, we've talked about the Latino through the view of Florida and it's the Cuban vote. When you talk about the Cuban vote in Florida, it's 30%. When you talk about the Cuban vote nationally, it's 4%. And so when you talk about the Latino in its broadest definition, 65% of them are Mexican. And so really Mexican voters within the Latino electorate are really booing democratic support. And so when we think about Black, Latino, or AAPI, we're really talking about this report giving you top lines on how communities are performing, but also identifying areas of opportunity, areas where there's potential need for more and additional engagement. And so sometimes we would always lump in young people with Democrats. Well, we're not taking that for granted anymore. And this idea of let's not take voters for granted I think is one that I think is starting to sink in and making folks realize that investment is required across the board for a longer period of time during the election. And so I think that's really like the benefit of this research, which is you can get lulled into a false sense of security that you have a set of voters. But when you look underneath it, you can see that there's some softness and let's invest in it. And I think that's like that's the power of this kind of report. Absolutely. And to, to just illustrate Michael's point about Black voters, in terms of support, even though support dropped slightly in nationally by two to three points, and then remained stable in highly contested states, in Georgia and North Carolina, it actually increased. These are already sky-high support numbers in the mid-90s, and we're seeing slight increases. So ultimately, if you don't take voters for granted, if you really invest in the communities, if you let communities organize themselves and really center their power, then you will continue to see support. But we can't take that for granted. I want to ask a question, but it's not related to the report and you can feel free to pass. But one of the things we're, we're starting to track and monitor here is the role that both predictive analytics and predictive polling and artificial intelligence is going to be playing in campaigns and elections. And I wonder, since both of you have experience with campaigns, what is your sense of what campaigns are doing and what are best practices and what campaigns and candidates should be thinking about for 2024? I will gladly take that question, but I want to go back to one important thing because 
the idea of not taking voters for granted, I think obviously makes sense when we're talking about voters. There are a set of voters that are not voting, right? They're still choosing not to vote. And so the way you think about them matters. And our theory is we should be respecting their choice not to participate, meaning we're not doing right. something for that consumer of democracy and elections isn't buying. And so we should constantly be thinking about how do we get that consumer, that voter engaged? How are they going to buy the product of democracy? And so I just want to add that because we often talk about the people that are in the electorate and where they're moving and how they go. But I think that it's really important to highlight there's still an incredible amount, 128 million folks that didn't participate. And so like when you're a political party, when you're candidates and you're thinking about how do I win? It's not just dividing yourselves among the people that are in. It's also expanding and inviting people in and figuring out what's the trick there. Right. And yeah, campaigns are, this is such a great point. Campaigns are really starting to reorient how they think about non-voters and really this concept of persuade to mobilize. That persuasion doesn't just work for um, voters on the fence about Democrats. Ultimately, non-voters are a much bigger pool. Um, and even in 2020, 80 million voters um, who were eligible to vote did not cast a ballot. That was an extraordinary uh, presidential. Just a quick comment on a matter or two quick comments on that. Young voters in particular, right? Yes, they are. They're voting at historic rate, slightly under in, in 2022 relative to 2018. But still, we're talking about two thirds of young people who could vote are not voting. And when we're talking about ages like 18 to 29, right? So there's a lot of work, especially for campaigns and being at an institution of higher education, thinking about how we prepare young people to become voters and informed voters in the electorate. But another important point, your report finds that the more competitive states had higher turnout. So there's also this problem of campaigns just dismissing the states that are and taking for granted states that are going to swing in one partisan direction or another. And I think that is an overall loss for democracy. Okay, fine. You need you have limited resources and time to invest. I get that. But that's an overall loss for thinking about how we create a more inclusive and participatory democracy. I have so many thoughts on this. Because I think at the end of the day, this becomes an efficiency game that is bound by a final score and time limits. And so like that pressure, those two right. things that continue to be constant really challenge how money gets invested and how we think about these campaigns, which is why the work that's being done outside of the political organization, outside of candidate campaigns is so important because I think to your point, when you think about elections, like we often do, from midterm to midterm or from midterm to presidential, you're thinking in two and four years, right? And I think really what you're saying and pointing out is the need for a longer sweeping arc because there are states that we thought would always be competitive. Ohio and places like Arizona, where I'm from, where it's just, I felt like I was Lucy Linus and Lucy in the football. Like I grew up in Arizona, right? Every time, what's going to be a battleground? I said, no, it's not. No, it's, and then it's there. And then to highlight that, the calculus when I was working for Governor Napolitano at the time was Maricopa run as close to Republicans as possible and lose it by as small a margin possible. 
and win the rest of the counties. And that's your ticket to success. It's totally inverted now. It literally is Democrats run in Maricopa County, run up the margins as much as possible and don't lose the rest of the counties by as much by by as small a margin as possible. And that's the thing that like sometimes our politics doesn't give us the opportunity or the ability to think 10 years, 14 years, multiple presidential cycles ahead to really think about where the opportunities are going to lie. Absolutely. And yeah, exactly. Campaigns are designed to do one, right? Like in a limited time frame, win as much as possible. Uh, but the larger infrastructure, which Catalyst is super proud to support. Um, in fact, most of our work is with a number of voter engagement and civic engagement organizations. Georgia has become competitive, not just because of demographic changes, but also because of a decade's worth of organizing there by community groups, which we support. And so I totally agree with you. Ultimately, it is a loss for democracy. The, the Electoral College, frankly, is also forces that sort of only some states are important and your vote just doesn't even matter. We hear that so much in D.C., but, but there are two things I will say. Number one, building out a civic infrastructure in other states is critically important, and we are really proud to support that as much as possible. But the, the second piece I will also add is local organizing, school boards, alleged districts, and so on. Those remain competitive even outside of the battleground states this cycle. And so I think there is a renewed interest among progressives and Democrats to look down ballot because that's frankly where a lot of crucial issues that we America is really grappling with right now are getting played out. Um, not to lose your AI question, <laughs> like it, my great fear about this is I think you are going to find some level of efficiency with the large language models, the ability to identify folks, ingest more information and know more about people. I would contend we've already had enough information about individual level voters. I would contend that the voter mm -hmm. file for a very long time has been used to divide and cut rather than expand the electorate. And I also think there's there there is sometimes a lack of humility when you think you know more about an individual. You, there, there's not right. it's not two way. And so a fear or concern I have is that it perpetuates a hubris that because I know or have access to additional or more information and I can process it faster and I can make the model better that I'm going to actually know that to convince you and change your mind. And I just think there's an element of this that you have to enter these conversations with the, with voters with Absolutely. a level of humility and let them tell you what's going on. It is shocking to me when we lose elections, often we hear from folks in the field that we're doing the door knocking, that we're calling people on the phone and they would be saying they're not buying. Yeah. Like this list of the Democrats in Michigan, I, I don't know, it's not resonating. Like this message, Clinton message isn't resonating. We hear it, but like the ability for the operatives to process it, I think is really the challenge. And so my concern, my flag would be just because we have AI, just because we have these large language models, just because we can do things more efficiently with a greater set of data, let's not also lose our ability to hear what voters are saying and responding to what we're putting out. And so that, that would be, that's my one big 
yeah. caveat. So yeah, we often look at to it's so ironic that folks who are specializing in data are saying that data is of limited utility ultimately, right? Like it's a contact sports, it's about human beings. And to the extent that AI can help us understand how to have those conversations better, great. But it can also lead to quite a bit of disinformation, which is something to be concerned about. After all, ChatGPT recently announced that they do not want to for their tool to be used for campaign purposes. And so I think like any new technology, this is really pretty a foundational change in data science and in the way we interact with technology. And there, it can be used for good or it can be used for bad. And we just have to, I think, really think about how we focus on the good. Thank you all. Thank you both, Michael and, and Harris, for, for joining us on Politics as Everything. We really appreciate your report. Oh, I was just going to say, at Catalyst.us, I've read it a couple times now. And, and again, wherever you are on the political spectrum, Catalyst is a Democratic firm. I, I do think that just in my experience with them putting out these reports in the past, that I think the numbers are pretty broadly respected across the spectrum. And I think there's something to learn about it, whatever your, whatever your rooting interest might be in politics, just the, the evolution of the electorate. You can also look at how the, the, these different demographic groups have voted based on their, the, how Catalyst has looked at this through multiple different elections. So again, I was really glad we uh, got to talk to you because again, I, I really uh, I really respect the work that you all do. Thank you so much. Thanks for taking time. Thank you for taking your time. Really appreciate it. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.